Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. My guest today is Darren Olsen and today we're going to talk about Viking Age, which I've been quite excited about because I wanted to make an episode this on this for quite some time and... Uh, being in the region myself, it's kind of personal history, I would say, because it feels more like my history in a sense. And of course, I always ask this: How, how, why curious? How did that happen? Why did I get interested? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, you know, I grew up in the United States, uh, but I was born of um, you know, my parents both uh, were ethnically Scandinavian. Um, my mother was almost a, nearly 100% Norwegian, and my father, I think, was half Norwegian and half Swedish. And so there was always an interest on our cultural heritage growing up. And, uh, you know, like a lot of, I think like a lot of, uh, especially young boys, you know, I, I, had, I, you know, I learned about the Viking Age and I had a romanticized view of it. And I took a course or two on it in college. And um, at some point in my life, uh, I started off my college career trying to become an engineer, but I, uh, my math skills weren't uh, quite up to the task. So eventually I became a historian. Um, and my, my scholarly focus is on modern Norway and immigration to the United States. So uh, I don't claim to be an expert on the Viking Age, but as happens to a lot of us in this field, we end up teaching courses on the Viking Age. And I teach one here uh, every two years at Indiana University East. Um, I'm a professor of history. Um, so it's, you know, it's something that I, I kind of, you know, enjoyed keeping up with. And of course, there's been this explosion of the Vikings in media, you know, popular culture recently. Um, I know I went to see the movie, The Northman, um, which about a month and a half ago. What, what do you think of it? Was it fairly accurate or is um, it? I think it's it, more, I think it, especially in terms of the culture, I think it was more accurate than probably anything else. You know, um, mm. it's, it's hard to say, you know, um, a lot of it you're dealing with uh, Viking mythology and we know something about Viking mythology, but we don't know everything. And I was, I was cautioned my students that a lot of the sources that we get on the Viking Age were written after the Viking Age had ended. And so we, we have to uh, we have to be a little careful when we, when we look at the Viking Age. Uh, and we're going to discuss, of course, he's refer- his, his referred to Snorri here, I believe. And we're going to talk about him by the end of the episode, of course, because he's kind of a significant source, as we spoke about before. And uh, but we're going to talk about him by the end of the episode. So we have to start, of course, with the beginning of the Viking Age. So was it really... Most people, especially in the that's true in the UK, and I believe most of Europe believe that it started in 746, I think, with the Battle of the Raid, sorry, on Lindisfarne. And is this where we can start the date of the Viking Age? Is that where, yeah, um, is that fairly accurate? Well, the traditional date is 793 for Lindisfarne. It's um, 93, sorry. That's okay. Uh, you know, dates are hard things. That's that's why we write them <laughs> down in books, so we don't, uh, so we can look them up later when we forget them. And I'm, uh, I, you know, in my classes, I try not to, uh, I try to go for what I call relative chronology. I try not to, you know, I want my students know how things happened in order, but I usually don't pin them down to an exact date. But yeah, uh, there was a famous raid at a um, monastery at Lindisfarne. It was um, an island monastery off the northeast coast of England. It occurred in 793. And um, it wasn't the first raid. There had been earlier raids uh, going back to about the middle of the 8th century. So I, I think I've read there were even some raids in the seven, 750s. But um, I think this one, uh, because it was on a monastery, and it's a little misleading. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, Lindisfarne was this isolated little settlement. Uh, and, it, you, know, it, you know, it just kind of wasn't that important, but actually it was. It was, a, it was a center of great wealth in that part of England. It was probably the largest population center north of York, or Jorvik, as it becomes known later, and, or Jorvik, the Vikings named it. And uh, also the monastery controlled a lot of land uh, on the mainland. Uh, so 
and it had a lot of wealth and it had been associated with St. Cuthbert. So um, it was very important. But I think the biggest reason it becomes noted is sort of the start of the Viking Age is you had the, you know, the churchman uh, Elkland who was in the court of Charlemagne. And uh, when he heard about it, of course, he was from Northumbria, right? He knew of this monastery. And so he was really devastated by the news. And uh, I think in some ways he becomes the propagandist for this, making Lindisfarne important. And as historians, we always have to, for any age, we have to choose a starting date and an ending date. And I, I think we can attribute a lot of that to Elkland uh, as the start of the, of the Viking Age. Of course, I, to understand, I kind of want to say because to understand why they went on the raid, I think we should see, take a look at what is what's the daily life in the Viking village was like and why they went on the raid in the first place. I think it's important to go back to what it was like in the Viking village. What so well, te- can, well, you, can you talk a little bit about yeah, this? Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, um, I guess, you know, the first person that pops to mind, and it's in a little different context, but I think of Thomas Hobbes and, you know, I forget his exact description, but he said something about, you know, uh, life outside of civilization was poor, brutish, and short. And that's kind of what it was like in... Uh, in, in the north in the viking age agriculture dominated life but those people spent their life trying to survive right they were involved in harvesting grain they had livestock there was fishing they did a lot of logging uh so it was you know that, that really dominated their lives and um you know we were talking before i went on about the different links of the day in norway well you know think about days in the north in Scandinavia, you know, you had these really long days and so during the during the summer months. So they would they would work very hard and long. But then the winters were very short with little light at all. And they were it was very cold, very snowy, you know, and they were huddled inside. Uh they kept their animals inside of course uh, for that. Um like I said families had to grow enough to feed themselves. Um if they were going to make extra money, usually they were involved in some sort of craft. So uh, maybe often had women doing weaving. The men might be doing things like leatherworking, uh, blacksmiths. I know Norway was noted for producing soapstone, which was an export item. And uh, what we've noted is that even even some of the smaller settlements were probably tried, you know, tied into at least regional trade in, in that part of the world, and so. That's where you try to make a little extra income. So why did why did people um, you know go on these Viking raids? Well, the traditional interpretation has been that uh, there's either overpopulation or also maybe combined with a sense of adventure and wanting to enrich themselves. Poverty was a part of this too, wasn't it? That's what the real poverty. Yeah, the, like I said, there there were um, you know this, it's it's not easy to make. Well, I'll use Norway as an example. Norway has about what four to five percent of its land is, is suitable for farming. You know, uh, it's mostly it's mostly vertical rock. You know, it's a mountainous country, and uh, you know there there were there were richer pastors abroad, and the you know the, the Vikings or the you know the Norse people before this time they you know they had traveled, they had done trade, so they they knew about these other places. Uh, a more recent interpretation, and uh, I use uh, the history book I use for the Viking Ages by Anders Winroth, and he argues that it was the role of chieftains who were looking to make a name for themselves. They weren't amounting to much back in the Scandinavian homeland, but if they went on these raids, they could uh, attain a reputation and then attract followers. And so he says that that was a main reason why uh, the Viking Age was really launched. I can, tell, I can tell you that much of the daily life in the Viking village these days. It's, it's not very interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the point. It's, uh, now, I, I tell my students if um, uh, one of the things I do in my class is we have a we have a, like a role playing simulation. And I said, you get to play the exciting, you, know, you actually get to play the Vikings that go abroad. But I said, if it were real, totally realistic, most of you would be farmers. And you'd just be farming all day, and yeah, your life would be really, really boring. Uh, you do the same thing day after day, um, and that, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you kind of forget that sometimes because you know those who went a Viking were just a very small percentage of, of the people living there. And I would, the way I understood this as well, they weren't really great warriors, which is why they picked monasteries because they were such an easy target. They could just go in and out; they didn't have to fight anyone. 
necessarily, but they, it was because it was such an easy target, they could just raid easy money and then get back home amid riches. Yeah, and, and from the Viking perspective, your thinking is this. Well, if you're going to put all this wealth into a building and then you're going to have these unarmed men are the only ones there, why shouldn't I take it? You're, you, you don't seem to consider it very valuable. You're not protecting it with other warriors. Um, and they found the, you're right, they found the, the monasteries uh, in particular very easy targets. Now, something I t- feel like was, has been a misconception is that the, the, the rape, might, while it might have occurred, it didn't occur as much as we think it was, that rape and uh, violence, such, such, such things didn't really happen as much as we think it did, did it? No, and um, that, that's sort of the, you know, the stereotyped image of the Viking Age are these, these pirate raids. Um, but, but what I, you know, as I tell my students, that the, the most prevalent Viking activity was trade. You know, the Vikings established trading centers. They used their advanced... Uh, I don't talk about combatantism a little bit later, of course. Yeah, I'm just, I'll just mention that yeah. now. Though, so that's the most common. You know, there's, and there's different activities later on, but the, the, the piracy part of it, um, you know, that's largely... You can, you can you know, maybe no more than the first century at, at most, where that's the dominant activity, and maybe even a little less than that. So, yeah, it's not, it's kind of the first activity we hear about, but it's mm. not, you know, it's not the major one. You're right. And something we have to talk about, of course, is the Danes. And when you refer to someone as Danes, they weren't just not, not again not necessarily Danish people, but the whole Scandinavia because they were considered Danes back then. And one, one thing that we're mostly known for is, is of course, the English occupation. Mm-hmm. So let's, what was, which just came to known as the Dane law, so what, what exactly was the Dane, the Dane law? It wasn't the law, was it? It was the Dane, the Scandinavian well, the rule of yeah. England. Well, um, the Dane law is interesting. It's a, it's a significant portion of England. It's rough, if you think of sort of these eastern and central part of England England during this period. Um, you know, we mentioned the raids, but eventually uh, what a lot of the Vikings realized was that there, you know, there's more here than just, you know, coming in and grabbing wealth and going off to it. They, we talked about how hard that existence was back in, you know, in Scandinavia. And so um, a lot of them said, well, maybe they're, you know, this, this is one place where, <clears throat> excuse me, it looks like it's a better place to live. And so they started, they started, you know, spending their winters um, in England. They set up camps, and over time, more and more of uh, uh, people from the north came. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the idea where you know, were they Danes? Well, at this time, there aren't really national identities. Um, you know, it's more it's more accurate to speak of, of Norse people coming. Did, did a lot of them come from what would have been, you know, this present day Denmark? Sure. Did they come from? You know, did some come from present-day Norway? Sure. Some from Sweden, you know, other places, yes. Um, and, and there was a common, uh, one, one of the common words used to describe uh, all people from the north of this time was just to say that they were Danes. You know, it was, it was kind of a, you, know, you might call them Norse, but you might also call them uh, Danes. So that was, those are kind of used interchangeably. Uh, and the Dane law is interesting, though, because there's the as the Norse settled there, and of course, there was a lot of intermarrying with the with the local population. Uh, they brought in their laws, and some of these uh, become part of English law. So, like the jury system, is probably the best known. Right? You had this idea. Um, now, originally, it was they had aristocratic juries, but later they came up with the idea that you'd have a jury of twelve of your peers. So, if you were a free person, like a, the Carl class, uh, you would be judged by twelve other Carls. In a, you know, in a court of law. Um, they also uh, divided the land administratively into what were called thridings or thirds. And this is the origin of the English word riding, which I think the English have finally gotten away with, but that was the system they used for centuries. Um, they also introduced other concepts. I'm talking about the Vikings here. They introduced con- like the idea that a, a dispute could be settled by a home gong, which was a duel. Uh, they also had the concept of, uh, of Vergild, which is the idea that uh, if you did bodily harm to somebody or even killed them, there was a certain price that you would pay. Um, like if you killed a, 
you know, a slave, based upon how valuable that slave was, there usually was a price assigned to that person. If you killed a free person, you'd have to compensate his family. Um, if you didn't do that, then you faced uh, the worst possible punishment, which was being outlawed. Um, this is safe for the worst, the worst of the offenders. They'd just be, you know, their assets would be seized. They'd be forced to leave the territory and they usually had a price on their heads. So a lot of these practices come into play uh, in the Dane law. And also they bring, you see, you know, over England, there are a lot of, um, like the English language still has a lot of, a lot of its common words come from uh, the Scandinavian languages, you know, Old Norse. Um, the one I think of right off the top of my head is anytime you see a town like, like Darby, with that dy ending you know that's that's a that's a old norse word or if you see uh like uh, ey like something like ramsey that, that usually meant the uh, ramenzoi or raven's island for instance so there's a lot of place names in england as well um, a lot of the common words are part of the english vocabulary um windroth has this interesting He's got like this long paragraph in his book and it uses only words that come from Old Norse. And I wish I had it here at the front John here somewhere, but it'd probably take too long to read and be kind of boring, but mm -hmm. kind of fun to know that. So did the, how did the rule, did they have a king there? Did they rule from Scandinavia or how, how did well, they yeah, go on about ruling well, Britain? Well, they, 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 had a, they had a king. Um, and I, the other thing I forgot to mention too was um, they, they would have introduced uh, the thing, you know, the, the, the parliament. Um, although we don't read as much about that in the Dane law, because um, I think there was, um, you know, I think because it was still kind of a mixed settlement, but, um, uh, you know, you, you, had, you had military leaders there and they often, you know, they didn't always become, uh, you know, you don't, you don't get the formal kings, although there, there does come to be, you know, a king of Jorvik or York. Um, later on, you have Ivar the Bonus was probably the most famous one. Um, so, you know, it's it's not really it's not really uh, at least not initially it's not really ruled from Scandinavia. That will happen later on. Uh, we'll see you know, the, the Scandinavian king is becoming involved in affairs in England. And a lot of that has to do with dynasty, you know, marriages, and all sorts of things like that. This is what I, th I think that scholars seem to think that this is the start of the Danish Empire, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So, so they rule for quite some time before, of course, before William the Conqueror comes along, but they, they do rule basically up to then, don't they? And up until William the Conqueror, which ironically also is from Norman, Norse ancestry. With, since it was a Norman, we, I mean, we come back to the Normans again later, but well, it, they did rule pretty much up to, until William the Conqueror, don't they? Well, I, I would also add uh, Canute the Great. You know, he had a, uh, a kind of what's called the North Sea Empire, right? He was king of Denmark, but um, you know, um, Svein Forkbeard was the one that gained control of England, but then he died just a few months after, and Canute succeeded him, and Canute. Put together this empire that included Denmark, England, you know, parts of Norway, parts of the islands, and so that you know he's the he's the person that falls in between um, that you know that uh, you know, William the Conqueror. Mm. Of course, uh, I'd like to mention me, nor the Normans, where they do they are Scandinavian ancestry, aren't they? Because that's they call Normans. So trying to make so how how did they emigrate to to France and from Norway? Um, well, uh, there, there's a long history of uh, you know, Vikings conducting raids into France. Um, you know, two two river valleys in particular, the Seine and the Loire. The Seine, of course, leads to Paris. Um, the Vikings raided frequently. Uh, they often would winter, uh, especially if there were islands in the middle of these rivers. And um, you know this, this plague, the uh, this plague the French kings for a long time, and finally um, they do try to see it take Paris too, don't they? Yeah, there's a siege of Paris. I forget the exact year, but uh, eight, ten, I think I think it's in the eight, mid to eight, ninth century. I think that sounds about right. Yeah, I don't know the exact date. But like I said, there's so many dates. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to track of them all. But yeah, they, they, the Vikings had even sieged uh, the siege Paris. Well, finally, you know, we have King Charles the Simple on the throne of France. 
uh, around the year 9-11. And he had originally tried to um, get one of his French vassals to occupy what is basically today Normandy, hoping he could hold off the Vikings. Again, Normandy, of course, comes from Normans. It comes later, but I'm using it so people, yeah, it comes from land of the Normans or land of the Northmen. What it literally means. So eventually, what he does is he there's this Viking leader named uh, Gunga Rolfer or Rolf the Walker. It was said that he was so large, no horse could carry him. And um, so Charles signs a treaty with uh, Rolf. He's better known in France as Rollo. Um, that's probably the name most people have heard of him by. So he he becomes the Duke of Normandy. Was was it Rollo that? Had a story where he kind of wanted, he's supposed to kiss the king's feet, and then he, I forget, the, I don't don't think his role. I'm not quite sure if I'm right here, but it was, it's a story of a Norman supposedly going to kiss the king's king's feet, but then he goes down, and then they kind of pull the feet of, supposedly. Yeah, there's there's some story like that, um, you know. Um, Again, it could be a work of fictional for all it's I know, but it's... There, you know, there's, there's, there's so much myth, um, you know, um, and, you know, we just don't know. I mean, mm. there's, some, there's, there's some great stories out there. I mean, it's possible he, he kissed his feet, um, but I don't know. I, I'm i a little skeptical of that, but who knows? You know, it maybe happened. But yeah, what, what were you were... Sorry to interrupt you there, but you were oh, going no, to talk okay. about... Uh, well, it's, it's talk, please, please continue about... Uh, Rolo, well, well, yeah. well, basically then what happens is, you know, um, so, you know, Rolf of Rolo and his Vikings, you know, they, they settled in this territory uh, on the coast, north, northwest coast of France. It's, it's the name Normandy because it's where the Northmen settled. Uh, we can still see that in the place name. And then other other people from Scandinavia come there to settle. Also, a lot of people from the Dane law settle uh, later on. And um, there's also, though, a lot of, we think there are a lot of uh, you know, members of, of the Anglo population in England that decide to cross over. So it's it's often been called kind of, there's sort of this mixed Anglo-Norse population, but very, very quickly they assimilate, you know, they adopt. They adopt the French language, <clears throat> French customs, but um, you know, but a lot of the names and the place names you can still see some of that, you know, that uh, Norse heritage. And I forgot to write down some examples beforehand, so I just have to trust me on that one. Something we don't need to come back to the. And, you know, it, becomes, it does work. It be- Sorry. Uh, uh, you fell out for a second, but it's it's okay. Uh, oh. I have something we don't talk about before we go into the Viking and trade part of the Viking Age. I want to talk about the raids of uh, Ireland because there is quite some, and they even settled a Viking king there at some point. So let's talk about Ireland and the Viking raids there for well, for a little bit. Well, um, look at my notes here a little bit, so I don't spot. Well, you know, um, the raids in Ireland start pretty much around the same time as, as Lindisfarne, although, you know, uh, possibly there were some earlier, but we do know there was one in 795 at the island of Rothland off the northeast coast of the mainland. And for about the next 40 years or so, that's that's what was happening. And these were like very, you know, guerrilla type raids the Vikings would come in. And we think they were launching them from Scotland. Uh, they probably had you know established bases in Scotland and then would go on to Ireland. And um, these most likely would have been Vikings who had come from what would be today present day Norway. And so you know they they started they started hitting um, you know they, again they went after monasteries that was a favorite target and with a lot of the same results. And um you know they were they were raiding, but they also noticed that hey, there you know there's nice territory here in Ireland. It's you know, a better climate. Um, it's a wealthier land, and eventually they start to stay. And uh, one of the things that the Vikings did was they would create these um, these, these coastal fortresses, and they were known as long forts, L O N G P H O R T S. 
And probably the most famous one that they established was in this small little village. Um, and it, it had a had a uh, had a major uh, like this big black pool by it. And uh, so the Vikings said, well, you know, that's that's a black pool, Dublin. That became that also became the name of uh, this settlement. Although I think the Irish already named it that. And that was in about 841, I think, 842. And the Vikings started using this um, as a place to store their ships and to winter over in Ireland. Uh, but then also, as you might expect, they uh, built it into a trading center. And um, so the Vikings you know, got involved there, and especially on the coast of Ireland. Uh, there's a number of cities like Waterford, Wexford, basically were established by Vikings. And uh, I forget the you know, the old Norse names, but um, well, I think I think Waterford is something like Rodnafjord um, or something. No, I can't quite pronounce it. Um, my old Norse isn't the best. Uh, and so again, it's kind of a similar process to what happens in England. You have a period of raiding, then the Vikings move on to colonization, which again is um, really driven by trade. And of course, like, like I always say, yeah, you know, since the Vikings raided a thousand years ago in Ireland, it must have been quite disappointing because Guinness wasn't invented yet. Because what wasn't invented? Guinness. Oh, the Guinness, beer. Yeah. yeah, well, um, <laughs> I imagine that, that would have been another treasure that the Vikings mm. would have enjoyed. They would have loved that, wouldn't they? Um, yeah, well, I, I think I think modern Scandinavians do. Uh, oh, yeah, me, that, me for sure is my, my favorite beer. <laughs> my favorites too. I'm, I'm hoping to get to Ireland someday. Mm. Uh, oh, it's amazing. Guinness in Ireland is amazing. I've it's highly that. recommended. I'm, yeah. I've made it there, but I'm, I'm hoping to. So. Oh, if when you go, just have a Guinness. It's, uh, you never have a Guinness outside of Ireland again. I promise you. Yeah, I've read they put, have to put preservatives in it when they ship it abroad. Mm. But yeah, it doesn't travel well. No, it doesn't. But Unfortunately, it you can find it right some places, but it's uh, it depends. Really depends. You have to be lucky to find a really good Guinness. Guinness, sorry, outside Ireland. Yeah. But yeah, so so back to back to the Vikings. Got a little distracted there, but we, something we talked about earlier, and we're going to come back to now is the Viking and trade because they did, like you said, it huge portion of the Scandinavian trade was in fur, uh, fur as well. And they do, but did trade with the other Europeans, mm-hmm. didn't they? And, and something I find fascinating is that they did trade, and we have archaeological evidence of this, that they did indeed trade with Span- Span- Spanish Islam and Muslim, Spanish Muslim Spain, which is uh, I find fascinating. So how, how did they go around trading how did how did that how did that work to put it in as those words well i think if you can if you can kind of envision a map of europe in your head um what the vikings did is they they took it you know because of their their maritime technology you know they had these wonderful ships that that could travel across the oceans the long ships uh the long ships well or, or the canars but they also had the you know, but because the draft was so shallow, uh, they could also go up uh, small rivers and streams. Uh, so what the Vikings basically did was uh, they certainly took advantage of the North Sea and the Baltic. And you can kind of think of those two being connected, um, especially around the Straits between um, you know, kind of southern Sweden and Denmark, you know, the Skagerrak and the, the Katagat. And then they connected those via riverways. So like if you think about you know, France, you've got those rivers we talked about earlier, the Seine, the Loire, but also the Rhine River, uh, the Rhone River. And then in Eastern Europe, they would have had all those various, you know, rivers, um, you know, like uh, the Volga, the Dnieper. There are several rivers in Eastern Europe that they would have been involved in. You know, there's, just, there's just so many, I can't keep track of them. And so they, you know, they, they almost could, and then if you add the Mediterranean later, the Vikings basically could surround Europe. They could get anywhere in Europe in terms of trade. They, they do trade with the Byzantine Empire too, don't they? The so how, how do they find which is Constantinople to them is known as Miklodar, I think. Yeah, Miklodar. So how, how, how do they hear about this amazing city down in the Mediterranean, well, and the Mediterranean and the Black Sea? Well, our, our, you know, our Eastern Vikings are principally our, you know, our Swedish Vikings. Um, 
you know, it has to do with geography, but Sweden, it's always, it's always been said a lot of times about Scandinavia, you know, Denmark, uh, uh, Norway points to the west, Sweden to the east, and Denmark kind of in between, right, middle of each. But um, the Swedes were, you know, you know, interacting in the Baltic. There was, um, you know, they were doing their raids there too along the Baltic coast. Um, but eventually they got tied into these trade networks through the river valleys. And again, because these, these long ships, um, both the bigger ships, which are the, you know, the Drakar and the, the, the Drekki, you know, the, the shorter ones, the Sneka or snakes could, could traverse these riverways. And so, uh, you know, they became connected with trade and eventually, you know, and because of these riverways that allowed Eastern Europe to be connected with the Byzantine Empire, which the Byzantine Empire just considered itself, you know, the survivor, but they were still the Roman Empire in their mind. Mm, yeah. But so there's very lucrative trade there. You know, it was very advanced civilization. Uh, they had coins, which, you know, especially if there were silver coins, the Vikings loved to get those. But also the Byzantine Empire is butted up right up next, you know, to um, the Islamic world. And so they're, you know, they're doing trade with the Islamic world. Mm. And they do especially with Islamic Spain too, don't they? Which Islamic is closer Spain. to, again, closer to France, so it's kind of shorter distance, isn't yeah. it? So all over the Viking Age, we find, uh, you know, silver coins. Some of them are from, are from Byzantium. There's a lot, however, from the, uh, you know, the Arabic world, mm. dinars. So mm. that that's fascinating. But there was a worldwide global trading network going on. And so I think it's at Birka uh, in Sweden. Mm. They found a little statue of uh, to the god Buddha, which was made in China, and so you know they could, if they needed to, they could get something from far, far away, because uh, all these, all these, you know, all these civilizations were connected to each other. You know, you would have had the Silk Roads, of course, going across Asia, but you also had ocean-going trade, uh, especially in the Indian Ocean basin, which would have connected the Islamic world and uh, and uh, the Byzantine Empire. So. Um, in a lot of ways, the Vikings are—they're the most worldly uh, in many ways of the Europeans at this time. You know, they—they're interacting with peoples across the world, and at, the, at these trading centers, the Vikings had. And we have to remember, they established them both with, within Scandinavia and without. So you've probably heard of some of the ones in Scandinavia, right? There was—I I mentioned Birka in Sweden. There was also a Helga, uh, Kalpang in Vestfold, Norway, um, Hedeby in Denmark, and they would trade things, right? So. The Vikings would trade various things, amber, timber, furs, fish, ropes, honey, ivory was a big product, but their biggest export was probably slaves. They got involved in the slave trade fairly early on, and they got a lot of the stuff they liked back, you know, for silver coins. They, they often traded for weapons, uh, pottery, glass. They liked, uh, salt was a big item, um, spices, you know. Northern food better, we could get spices from Asia. Uh, wine was a big one, right? Again, it was hard to grow wine in the north, but um, especially the Viking chieftains and the Jarls, the kings, they loved their wine, so they often drank it. Silks. We, we read um, you know, um, Evan Fodlin's account when he traveled through Eastern Europe and met the Vikings, that they loved to wear silks, the, you know, especially the leaders. I, I do believe that do meet the Islamic traveler, even Batuta, at some point as well, don't they? Uh, I'm trying to remember if he got that far north or not. Uh, he does mention some Norse ritual. I haven't read. He might have. Uh, might, might have encountered one in, um, yeah. in the Middle East. I don't. I don't know if he actually. I don't if there are some listeners that might comment on this, I will have to get some answers. But I do believe that he do meet some Vikings. Yeah. I haven't, unfortunately, hadn't had time to read his book yet. But I, and I do intend to. But I do it. believe. I do believe he do meets at some point. Well, the one I've got is his travels in Africa, which is fascinating mm. um, you know, because he's he comes with certain, yeah. certain biases and then he encounters all these di different forms of um, Islamic culture across Africa. And it's just it's really fun to read his reactions. Mm. Of, of course, something we have to talk about, and we made that did make an episode about this last year, which I highly recommend with the YouTube channel is Eastern Roman History. and. We talked about the Varangian Guards, but we have to talk about them a little bit in this episode too. So how do they end up, how did the Byzantines find out that hey, these are kind of two decent warriors? Maybe we should use, and they look scary. So maybe we should use them as our Praetorian Guards in a sense. So how, how do they end up finding out, find out that they could be useful 
a statesman for the emperor. Well, it's an interesting story. Um, in the late 900s, there was a Byzantine Empire emperor, excuse me, known as Basil II, but he had several challenges uh, to the throne, and he wasn't, you know, he wanted that little extra advantage, and so um, he reached out to uh, the ruler of, uh, it's, you know, Kiev, right, modern-day Kiev in Ukraine. Um, it was a it was actually one of the it was one of the states that was founded by Viking rulers, and the ruler at that time was Vladimir the First, which is just a you know transposition of the Scandinavian name Valdemar, I think. Well, anyway, um, Basil the Second wanted Vladimir to send him some troops, and to sweeten the deal, he offered his sister's hand in marriage, as long as Vladimir would convert to Christianity, which he did, and then. Um, Vladimir sent 6,000 of his best troops to the empire, and this helped Basil uh, fight off the pretenders. And they, they just kind of, well, not all of them stayed, but Basil kind of liked having, you know, these troops around because uh, they were loyal to him, right? They weren't, they weren't loyal to any of his... You know, they just got, they were loyal to money. Yeah, and you're right. It's almost like a Praetorian, you know, you know, in a Roman sense, this was almost like a Praetorian guard. And so he and his successors just decided, let's just let's just keep this force of Scandinavian warriors. You know, they were ferocious fighters for one thing. And they, they kind of scared the heck out of the a lot of the Byzantine warriors. Yeah. They, they kept them around, you know, and um, they became known eventually as the Varangian Guard. And we think that probably means something like allies or something. I believe in the Russian is to invite a I think. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Um, of course, there's also the story of the most famous member of the Varangian Guard. There was a young man named Harald, well, he became known as Harald Hardrada. Um, mm. the, br- the brother of St. Ulo, I believe. Yeah, he and he became, uh, he served the Varangian Guard from 1034 to 1043. And um, he was, he became a he was, you know, about, I think he was very young when he joined. I think he was only 19. He eventually has an affair with the Empress Zoe. <laughs> and when the, uh, when the Emperor... Uh, uh, so the, the war breaks out in 1041 in, in Byzantium. And uh, Zoe is one of the, you know, she's the leader of one of the factions. And so um, Harald becomes leader of her faction. There, there, there had been an emperor named, or at least who tried to take over, named Michael, um, but uh, Harald killed him. Ostensibly, he cut out his eyes. And then after he helped Zoe uh, regain her throne, then Zoe turns on him, had him imprisoned, but he manages to escape when um, the prince of, yeah, that's what Kiev was called, a principality, excuse me, I forgot that. So mm-hmm. Prince Yaroslav, of Kiev does has this invasion. It fails horribly, but there's all this confusion, and that allows Harald to escape. He returns to the north. Doesn't um, he bring along the treasury of Byzantine as he, well? Yeah, he made most of these guys got really wealthy. You know, they were paid well, but um, they found ways to you know supplement their income. Um, you know, if they were commanders, and you know they they were used in battles a lot. And if there were any riches to be had from those battles, the spoils of war, right? They would take those. Yeah. And Harald certainly did that. So he had this nice treasure chest when he went back to Norway. And, um, you know, Magnus will die in 1047, and then he becomes the sole king of Norway. And he's eventually going to you know, plot to uh, invade England about 20 years later. Which but, fails, as you know. Which fails. Yeah. Well, the, if the wind had only been blowing from the other direction. Mm. <laughs> Is um something we have to of course talk about, and uh, it would be a crime if we didn't. Would be that, that is Scandinavians, of course, found America first, but they didn't settle there. So why was that? They sailed there, they found this land. Did they didn't? Why didn't they want to settle there? Why did they turn back and just forget about forget about it? Forget. Uh, well, um, kind of forgot about it in a sense. Well, well, I think I think one of the you know. There weren't a lot of Norsemen that, or Norse people who made it into the New, New World. It was a pretty small community. And um, the one dumb thing they did was they antagonized the local uh, indigenous peoples. And those in, indigenous peoples, you know, they got, into, they got into fights with them and the, the indigenous peoples won. You know, the, 
the Norse didn't win every fight they were in, and this was one that they were they were losing. And it was it was also at the very far end of what uh, with that technology at that time in the population I, of maybe what they could no, do. It was correct me if I'm wrong. There, but, yeah. but but I do believe that in the series American Gods they do the first scene of the Norsemen they do kind of depict this that they run away from the new land, don't they? If I remember uh, correctly in the in American they, Gods. They yeah, they had to hightail it out of there because mm. they were, you know, they weren't uh, they weren't faring very well, and they were um, they were under constant attacks. And you know, the indigenous, um, what we call you know, American Indians drove them out, basically. Mm. And it just it was just really hard to sustain that far. You know, if you look at the distance, mm. um, it's just it's just so remote. In terms, of, they they would have, you know they would have had to import a lot of the things they needed, but they were they were there long mm. before Columbus, but. Um, you know, they couldn't. They couldn't establish. It was very unlikely they were going to establish any sort of permanent settlement there. Mister, is it is kind of interesting? What if scenario? What if they did settle there, and how would it have developed? I I don't know. I think you know. I, I don't know if they ever would have had a critical enough population. I mean, I think the most likely outcome would have been that they would have probably assimilated with the indigenous people. You know, I. You know, there's this great mystery about the settlers at Roanoke in Virginia, but I, I think the, I think that's what, you know, that's what happened, or North Carolina, excuse me. I think that's what happened, you know, with the people from Roanoke. I think they eventually assimilated with the indigenous peoples. And I think that probably would have been what would have happened with our Norse or our Scandinavians. Um, it was just really hard to get that many people you know you know critical enough mass mm. to make it's it. quite a far distance as it's well. a really far distance and yeah those ships were the best at the time but you know they still it's still a very long ways mm. to go and it would take another four first 500 years until yeah. they have proper ships again to yeah. actually sail across the ocean they did settle iceland though and greenland yeah, yeah they they could settle those areas. Um, and, you know, Again, it's Iceland. quite shorter distance. Than... It's much shorter to Iceland and Greenland, and you know, Iceland survived. Um, Greenland didn't. Um, either either they just got wiped out, or they may, maybe they assimilated. We don't know. It's, it's a mystery in Greenland. We're not sure. Mm. Um, know exactly what happened. But again, the Greenland. It, it makes for good historical fiction, though. <laughs> yeah, it makes fun if you like that. Yeah, it's, um, it makes for great fiction. So, uh, of course, you have to talk about the unification of Norway and how, how did that go about? Because, it's, again, of course, there's uh, some legends around the unification of Norway. And now, I do have the name of the king in Norwegian. I don't remember his English name. Hårek is it called in Norwegian, so I don't remember his English name, unfortunately. So, sorry for my international listeners. But how, how did the uni- unification of Norway go? Well, I think the traditional story has been that, um, and I'll use the English phrase, um, although the, the modern one would be Harald uh, Harfagri, I think it'd be the, uh, usually it's translated as Harold Fairhair or Harald yeah, Fairhair. That's it. Um, well, he was a regional, you know, think about, oh, you know, roughly the 860s, 870s. He's a regional king in southeastern Norway. And he's ambitious. Uh, he wants to consolidate. He wants to be, you know, rule over a bigger territory. And uh, what he what he what he's able to do is he he basically decides he's going to divide the country up. There's a there's a powerful man in the north of Norway um, known as Håkon. He's the Jarl of Lada in what is current day Trondelag. I guess it's still called Trondelag. Yeah, it is. And uh, Anytime there's a unification attempt in Norway, the, the earls of Lada, uh, I think it was Hladir in the Old Norse, uh, always come up. Well, Harald Fairhair cut a deal and basically he said, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take over basically you know, kind of the southeast and the western part of Norway and I'll, I'll leave you alone up there. And, you know, so that was, that was fine. And so Harald just started working to pick off um, you know, these various smaller kingdoms or chieftains trying to make them swear loyalty to him. Uh, according to medieval historians, there's this huge battle at Hoplersfjord, uh, which is near Stavanger. And they say it was 872, but most modern historians would date it to 
The most common date I've seen is about 885, though it may have even been in the 890s. And uh, there's, a, there's an interesting monument there at uh, Hoppersfjord. It's the Sverdi um, Fjella, the three swords in the mountain. And I've actually been there. It's kind of neat. I had my picture taken there with um, my colleague from Norway. And um, so it's, and there's also this interesting story about how Harald got his name, that um, when he was still as the regional king, he was looking to marry uh, this woman named Yida, who's the daughter of King Eric of Fordalon, but she, she refused and she said, well, come back to me when you become king of all Norway. So it's a nice story, whether it and, the, and it does say that he's not, the reasons were fine here because he's not going to chat his hair until he, until he unifies Norway, which yeah. he does. So he makes this pledge to himself and he spends, you know, 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it is, you know, he finally yeah. unites Norway. Um, and then the story goes that then, you know, he just made her a concubine. He decided not to. <laughs> he, just, you know, he wanted somebody more impressive. Uh, he had a couple of different wives. Um, and, you know, so he, you know, he, he puts in his administration, starts to get central control of Norway, although this is also the time when we hear that a lot of Norwegians didn't like his strong rules. A lot of them go into exile. Um, many, you know, Iceland is usually thought to be settled during this time by the Norse. Um, problem with Harald is we don't have a lot of contemporary evidence, and most of the evidence we get comes from Snorri Sturluson, who's writing around 1220, 1230, you know, a couple centuries later. So there are some scholars that would argue, I, mean, I think most would buy that Harald was the unifier, but there's some that would say mm -hmm. that the unification of Norway doesn't really come until uh, later on, either under Olaf Tryggvason in the late 900s or even uh, St. Olaf, Olaf Haraldsson, um, who reigned from 1016 to 1028. So, you know, there's some, there can be some disagreement there, but I think the most common one listed is, you know, is Harald Fairhair. And of course, I want to talk about him next. It's funny you mention him because I think how he's the one I want to talk about now because so as I'm trying to refer to him as St. Olaf, and, and again, I'm, I grew up with the Norwegian name, so I don't remember his English name. I'm sorry again. So how does he, because he is kind of a legend here in Norway, and we do have a play every year that is set here in Vardar, while it is in Norwegian, I would highly recommend going and checking it out still, because the music is amazing. Yeah. It's set up every year here in Vardar. Yep. And, I'll try to get there. And it's really amazing. The music is just, but it's fiction. This is story, well, the story is fiction, of course, it is. Still a great story, nonetheless, and it's highly worth checking out. But yeah, how how does he? Because he is the one that when Harald Herfair is Christian unified Norway. Sorry, he is the one that Christianized Norway. So how does it go about going about to do that? Um. Well, um, because it's quite brutal. It, largely by force, you know. Uh, that's the simple answer. Um. Although, you know, Olaf Tryggvason had used force as well. He tried to convince people, but he would ultimately rely on force, and that's how Saint Olaf did it. You know, um, these these would be kings. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that they really needed to become to get a to get a kingship like or a kingdom like you would have in the rest of Europe. And the, one of the key things you need is a bureaucracy. You need you need scribes that can write stuff down. There, you know, remember our, our Norse people aren't really literate yet, but. There's one institution that has a lot of literate people, and that's the church, the Christian church. And so it becomes, um, how would I say this? Um, it becomes very attractive for would-be kings in Scandinavia to impose Christianity in their realms, because then they'll gain the favor of the church. Then they have all these clerics working for them who can keep records. And that's how that's how you run a really effective and powerful kingdom. You have to have record keeping. Uh, otherwise, you're just ruling on the force of your personality. And when that's the case, often the kingdoms fall apart. I mean, look at what happened to Harald Fairhair's kingdom after after he uh, after he dies. You know, it, it doesn't really hold together. So, um, and uh, it's the same goes with Alexander the Great and many yeah. many other leaders. Yeah, well. it's it's. You need you need those those civil servants or those bureaucrats. If you don't have them, you're not going to have a you're not going to have you know your 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 um 
you know, you're not going to be able to have very effective and long-lasting rules. And, and Olaf, of course, started out as a pagan. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. Um, he converted when he was about 18 or 19. Um, he'd gotten involved in fighting um, with, uh, originally against the English, but uh, he was supporting uh, King Ethelred II, known as the Unready. Uh, but he had to get out of there when the Danish king, Svein Fortbeer, gained the upper hand. And while he was in, um, actually, he was in Normandy at Rouen, and that's where he got baptized. Because he doesn't get managed to get expelled from Norway, too, for, because of... Yeah. Well, he was, um, you know, he goes back to Norway. He tries to, he's going to consolidate um, mm. his rule. He's got some powerful enemies. Uh, you know, Denmark has controlled part of Norway. Uh, you also still have that Earl of Lada, right? Another another uh, Hawkon, I believe. And even the Swedes are against him. He manages to kind of sort things out with the Swedes. Um, he starts pressuring, you know, his people with force to convert to Christianity. Um, and you see, he's kind of a heavy-handed ruler, right? And he uh, writes Norway's first national legislation with the help of Bishop Bishop Grimkel. It's this religious code that comes out in 1024. But uh, what ultimately threatens his kingdom, or what, what, where his kingdom becomes a threat, is that uh, Canute the Great, uh, the kingdom of, I guess we would call it Denmark, England, Denmark, or, or Denmark, England, however you want to term it, uh, wants to still control those lucrative western uh, parts of Norway. He forces Olaf into exile in 1028. Olaf goes and lives with uh, King Olaf Skotkoning in Sweden. It is worth mentioning that the way Olaf kind of convert, converted people is that either you become Christian or you chop, you chop your head off, which, your head off, yeah. which uh, needless, part, needless to say wasn't very popular in the, no, even no. in those days. No, it's the, it's the Charlemagne method, right? Uh, that's how Charlemagne converted the Saxons, right? He, he uh, what was it, 4,500 in one day he had beheaded um, back in, oh, I want to say... Maybe eight seventy-five somewhere in there. Right. So, yeah, he's 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 not giving people a choice. He's just going to make them uh, threat of you know, the threat of death. So, yeah, he's not real popular, and um, a lot of a lot of the chieftains in Norway were like, uh, we'd rather you know we'd rather have uh, Canute ruling us from England. He's far away. He can't do as much. Uh, Olaf does return with an army a couple of years later in, in ten thirty, uh, and he's got he's got the um, the son of Skutkoning, uh, Anand Jakob, Anand Jacob, and they they try to they try to conquer Norway, but the chieftains resist, and there's a lot of the, a lot of the peasants who can't stand him, of course, rise up. And there's also you know the Danes have their forces over there, and he's defeated at Stiklestad. Which um, we also made an episode about, episode thirty four, I oh, think, oh, oh, last oh, year. So oh, I highly oh. recommend checking that one out after you finish this episode. So, I mean, but so you think, okay, that's that's the end of his story. Well, you know, the, the church is still hoping there's got to be some way to try to get Christianity to to stick in Norway. They they canonize him. They they make Olaf a saint a year later after his death in 1031. Now we again we sorry for interrupting you a little bit there, but he is the Norwegian only official. Well, there was many yeah. smaller saints, faith, so to speak, fake saints. He's Norris only saint, official saint, yeah. anyhow. Yeah. So, uh, Norwegians haven't done much since him, right? In terms mm-hmm. of uh, sanctification. Um, <laughs> but um, so, anyway, yeah, he, he sanctified. Well, eventually, you know, the, the people in Norway, especially uh, some of these chieftains, they find out that Canute is just as, you know, he's ruling over them, he's trying to control them. They get kind of tired of him and, um, at least according to the stories, you know, uh, Olaf, who's now sanctified as a saint, becomes kind of a rallying cry. I think what really just happened was they realized that Christianity was going to come to Norway. And I think they thought, well, it's better to have, you know, a Norwegian king than a foreign king uh, ruling us. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know... Because you can say that to Denmark, Norway. Huh? You can say that to Denmark, Norway. Yeah, yeah. And... There's this long tradition, of course, of Denmark ruling over, um, you know, ruling over Norway, um, certainly the southern part of Sweden, right? So, um, and so, you know, when they got the foreign in the end, after all. 
Excuse we me? got we got a foreign king in the end after you, all. You got yeah, you got a Danish uh, well, Danish king in the end. <laughs> but, uh, although I think he proved his uh, his patriotism yeah. in World War II, so that that kind of helped. Hmm. So what many it seems that many people kind of consider Saint Olaf as sort of the end of the Viking Age, but is that true that that was kind of the Christianization of Norway kind of signify the end of the Viking Age? Oh, you, you could do that. And I, I, I think, I know some Danish historians tend to think of it, that that's the end. Um, most historians nowadays would argue that the end comes in 1066. Um, and that's the year when Edward the Confessor dies. He's been the King of England for several years, but he dies childish, childless, excuse me. Maybe he was childish too, I don't know. Dies childless, doesn't have an heir, and there are about four contenders to uh, to be his successor. Now, he had named uh, uh, one of his relatives, Harold Godwinson, to be the king, but he had also this is in January of 1066. But he had also, or he's crowned in 1066. But he also promised the throne back as early as 1051 to um, William of Norm, the Duke of Normandy. Hmm. Also known as William the Conqueror, of course. He becomes known as William the Conqueror. Uh, There also was a claim from, um, you know, um, Harald Hardrada, who, you know, becomes, I see, I mentioned was king of Norway. He had a claim, and then Tostig Godwinson, the brother of Harald Harald Godwinson in England, had a claim too. And so, very complicated, hard to keep track of. Eventually, what happens is Tostig and Harald Hardrada send a combined force from Norway. They land um, not too far from uh, York in northern England. Harald is down you know, in southern England. He hears about this and he force marches his army up north and he catches uh, Harald Hardrada and Tosti. Uh, you know, they, they're standing around. It's a hot day. It's in, it's in September and they don't have their armor on. And he catches them, uh, he ambushes them basically, and they are they are killed. And the rest of his fleet sails back to Norway. Of course, then just as that happens, Harold gets news from a messenger that William the Conqueror, well, William of Normandy has invaded in the south of England. So Harold has to turn around and force march his troops uh, to the south of England. And there's a battle near Hastings. And actually, Harold is doing okay until his men abandon the high ground, and that allows the Norman cavalry to. It's them. over, Harold. I have the high ground. Yeah, as long as Harold, if he should just stayed on the high ground, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't heed that, that advice. Um, well, his men started. He told them to. They started running down. They were going to kill the, the Normans. And so, it's really complicated. It could be an entire class by itself. But eventually, eventually, what happens is William, who becomes known William, William the Conqueror, becomes King of England, and that's where you get the Norman and the French influence. But again, there's that Scandinavian connection, right? So, yeah, you know. Um, you can say that the you know and that's for most historians in the viking age um however there are some that note that especially if you look at scotland there are still uh you know there's still norse rulers in scotland there's sort of this development of a sort of a hybrid norse Gaelic. ireland too i believe yeah the islands you know the uh, the orkneys especially um the shetlands right the hebrides um and the rule of the Norse and the Orkneys doesn't end until what about twelve thirty, and there's there's this battle of of at the at Largs in twelve in twelve sixty three. That's where the Scots finally defeat the Norse, and it's called the last battle of the Vikings. And so, you know, some scholars would argue that the Viking Age doesn't maybe doesn't end till sometime in the middle of the twelve hundreds. Um, yeah, I wanted to mention uh, there is one Norwegian crusade crusader king. You said you you were so far, I believe. Yeah, who, yeah. who is also referred to as Vikings because he does travel when they travel on the crusade to Byzantium and Jerusalem. He is uh, he does is mentioned thought about as a Viking. Yeah, so you know, um, you know, as, the, as historians, we try to uh, you know, the people at this time were you know they didn't say that they, you know, they didn't have any idea they're living mm. in the Viking age. You know that that age gets applied later. In fact. 
I think the first mention of the Viking Age was by the Swedish archaeologist Oscar Montelius in, I want to say, 1871 or 1872. That's the first formal time it's mentioned. So it's a, the Viking Age, in a lot of ways, is a recent invention. Mm. You know, it's, it's, we kind of impose order on something in the past and trying to mm. explain it. Yeah. So, of course, we have, before we go, we have to discuss Snorri, as you mentioned him earlier. How, how essential is he? So how significant? Because he's kind of our Scandinavia's Herodotus, wouldn't you say, that he is yeah. kind of a, a significant to writing history? Yeah. Uh, well, Snorri uh, you know, lives in the uh, you know, 1200s. He's, a, he's an Icelandic chieftain. Where does he get any sources from? How does he manage to write um, down the well, time string? We think he must have had access to some, you know, that perhaps others had written down some of the oral material from the Viking Age. He also traveled around and, and would, you know, because Iceland had a very strong oral culture. So he, he would listen to these stories and we think he wrote them down. And, um, you know, he compiles these together, including some of the myths. Would it be fair to compare him to kind of Scandinavia's Herodotus? Well, he's really the first one to write a comprehensive history, uh, especially his Heimskringla. Uh, that's really a history of the kings of Norway. And uh, so that, that's why, you know, it's, he's really the first to attempt to write a systematic chronology of at least one of, you know, Norway had often tried to control Iceland during this time. So he, he writes this, at least we have this history of, of Norway and its kings, right? Um, mm. you know, somewhat similar to maybe the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or something like that, right? Um, so we, that, and, you know, Herodotus is really the first historian to ever write about Greek history. You know, he puts it to paper. I would kind of compare the two in a sense. Of course, they're centuries apart, kind of, he is the first to write about Vikings, and yeah. Herodotus kind of is also first about to write about, and yeah, like you said, Greek history. So what, I want to kind of compare the two historians. Well, I, I, think, I think most historians view Snorri, you know, he's a fairly reliable source. Obviously, he doesn't get everything right, but um, a lot of what he's written seems to hold up fairly well. Even though he's writing after the after the time period, and so and we really rely on those those Icelandic uh, sources to inform us about what happened in the Viking Age. You know, we have we have a few sources from you know from the Viking Age, mainly archaeological sources. Mm -hmm. We have some of the you know the runes that are carved in stone. Monasteries have probably written down some stuff about ra Norse raiders, I believe. Mm -hmm. That's something I didn't get to. Mention when he talked about Ireland is I was reading, uh, hold on, I, I had to find his, I forgot his name, The Hammer and the Cross by Robert Ferguson a while ago. And he mentioned that they did a, a DNA test of Isle of Man and I believe Ireland as well. And it was quite surprising how many people had Scandinavian ancestry in their DNA. It was quite surprising. Yeah, it was, it was uh, the DNA tests have shown that there was. There was a much larger Scandinavian population in in the British Isles than had previously been suspected. So yeah, that's that's really surprising. Um, I've also I've also just like in social media, there's been kind of this resurgence of well, there's there's a group called Norse Gaels, you know, people who are you know Gaelic ancestry, often Scottish or Irish, but they understand that they probably have some Scandinavian ancestry as well and they're really proud of it and um study of the viking age is very popular um for i mean for obvious reasons yeah for obvious reasons and you know the isle of man also you know that's like the longest running parliament in the world i believe the tinwald so that's a very interesting story um, as well i think the world's oldest door is also on that island mm. so it's like 900 years old yeah and of course, something we have to discuss is the Vikings, and this is one, perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions at all, and thank you, Hollywood, for, the, for this misconception, is that the Vikings didn't really have horns on their helmets, did they? It, it, that's, that didn't make, doesn't make sense. No, we, uh, uh, we think that 
most likely the, the best the best explanation seems to be that that was added around 1870. Was it Wagner's uh, one of Wagner's operas? Yes, there was a costume. Valtteri, I think. Named uh, what was his name? Emil Deppler or something like. I, I don't I might not, I don't have his last name right necessarily, but yeah, costume designer for one of Wagner's productions. Um, he thought he didn't think that the Vikings looked fierce enough in just the, mm. in the conical conical shaped helmets. So he added. He put horns on them. He thought that'd make them look better, you know, make them more 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 fearsome. And it so, and it caught up. It caught on. It so. caught on, and now everybody wants to see those horns, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much for coming. I think you covered a really good amount of the Viking Age, from uh, raids to trade and a, a bit, fair basic amount. So before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Any social media where people might find you if they have questions or things you want me to put in the description below? Um, if I could just do, hold on, let's get, I'll, I'll just put my yeah. plug, do a short plug for that. Yeah, uh, he's just a brother Mason, get his book there. Yeah, there you go. So this is my book. You can, can you see it there? Yeah. Vikings Across the Atlantic. Um, now this is about the modern era. It's about its emigration and the building of a greater Norway. Mm. But uh, this came out in 2013 from the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, it's in English, but um, you know, if you get a chance, please pick it up. Um, I think you'll, if you like the modern era, I, I do talk a lot about Vikings, but as a as a symbol for the modern day immigrants. So mm. uh, Vikings. Vikings are very flexible as symbols. That's one of the arguments I would make. Where can people find the book if they want to buy it? Um, I would think um, you know, any reputable bookseller should be able to, um, to get it for you. Um, it's still in print. Uh, it's about, um, I think it's about $34, $35 American. You mm -hmm. might be able to get it, though, at a lesser price, um, you know, maybe used or you know, slightly used. So not, it's not too bad of a price. Mm, I say. Thank you so much for coming. This has been Medatech as well. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. Please like, share, and subscribe. Also, if you enjoyed the time, listen to some other episodes that we have made, and I guarantee you're going to find something that you like. And if you don't listen to Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a little review. That would help us out a lot. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Modatish 12. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time.